All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to James chapter 1. I hope all of us come away encouraged by what we see here in God's Word. Uh, James chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 18 and read through the end of this chapter. So if you would follow along with me, I'll read to us. James writes, By his own choice, God gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Don't nudge your spouse. (laughs) For human anger, verse 20, does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, Humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world." Imposter syndrome might be a phrase that you've heard before. I've heard it increasingly used over the last couple of years, and I've seen it in articles that I've come across in the last year or so. And I'm not going to try to venture a technical definition. I'm certainly not an expert, but I get the sense from what I've read that it's this, this sort of feeling that some of us struggle with, that we're trying to belong in a group, but, but it's like we're faking it. And we fear that we're going to be exposed as a fraud. We fear that the people who actually belong inside the circle know that we don't belong inside the circle. They know something about us that we're not even sure about. And they have a keen eye to see that we don't, in fact, belong to the group that we're aspiring to belong to. You pick up just a cursory reading of the New Testament. And you pick up the idea that there are Christians, genuine Christians, who struggle to know Do I belong? Am I loved by God? Am I on the inside of the circle or am I on the outside of the circle? Am I the real deal? You ever wondered that in your own Christian life? You've ever battled with assurance in your own Christian life? What a gift that is, by the way, for us in small groups and in deep community to be able to look at someone else and say, hey, brother, sister, you are the real deal. If you can't see it, I'm telling you, I can see it. What a gift that is. So James kind of reveals in New Testament letters, reveal that this is something that Christians struggle with sometimes, assurance of salvation. On the other hand, you read the New Testament letters, and there are actual imposters who are playing religion, and their sense of assurance is actually a false assurance. Which is why when you read through the New Testament, you have assurance passages set right alongside warning passages. So that the same New Testament that comforts the afflicted 
afflicts the comfortable. So it speaks in both of these kinds of ways to meddle with one group and to bring and pull in another group. So James, he has this this wonderful way in his letter of pulling the genuine believer in and saying, you are the real deal. He's been doing it already in chapter one. He says, your endurance in trials is an evidence of God's grace. The fact that when you suffer, you start praying, you start asking for wisdom. That's evidence of of you being the real deal. The way we saw last week, the way that you battle temptation, temptation rises from within, it's inner enticements that are stimulated and stirred up in our hearts. Uh, you fight against those. You're in the battle. You're in the fight. That's, that's real deal stuff. That's, that's you proving evidence of God's grace in your life. Your posture in our text, your posture toward the word of God and your compassion toward those in distress is evidence that you are the real deal. It's evidence of genuine faith. You see that in verses 19 through 27. And so in that way, I didn't say this in our first week, but I'll say it now. I hope that our study of this letter from James is going to be used by the Lord in all kinds of wonderful ways. I hope our study of James is going to be used by the Lord to wake some of us up to the dramatic difference between doing Christian things and having new life in Jesus. So I pray that real Salvation, conversion, lights go on, that, that kind of stuff, right? Only the Spirit of God can do that kind of stuff. I pray that happens. I, I pray on the other end, I hope studying James is going to be used by the Lord to breathe deep assurance into Christians, right? Into everybody who will look to Jesus, who, who is willing to look to Christ for refuge. Even in the midst of your, your loud, very vocal thoughts and doubts about whether you're the real deal. And so this passage, I, I, I think, actually all of chapter one, I wish I could go back and trace this thread all the way from the beginning, but we don't have time. But I think this whole passage, this whole chapter is really about the Father's work. So in James chapter uh, one, verse 17, the beginning and the end of our text. In verse 17, James explicitly names God the Father. He brings God the Father into the picture. And what does he call him? Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father, the Father of lights. And then our passage closes by pointing to a transformation by which God is creating in us the same impulses that are in the Father's heart. You see there? Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. Just say this, from a pastoral standpoint, I think the purpose of God in chapter one is to say both to those believers then and to you believers today, those of you who are afflicted by trials, those of you and us who are tempted by sin, that even in the midst of your hardest days, your father is faithfully at work. You know the concept of, um, of the calendar day where the kids get to go to work with dad, which is really a terrible idea, uh, objectively speaking, right? It sounds like a great way to both ruin your day uh, and ruin the kids' day at the same time. You get nothing done and they hate it, right? So it's, it's a win for no one. <laughs> but, but just go with it for a second, all right? Go with it and, and imagine you went to work with your heavenly father. What would you see him doing? 
And James, I think, invites us to see the Father working in a few different ways. Number one, regeneration, the Father's harvest. One of God's favorite ways to represent himself is with his hands in the dirt. It's the very first picture we have of God in the book of Genesis. His hands are in the dirt. His hands are in the mud. He's making things. He's got his hand in the ground and he makes man from the earth. Regeneration, the father's harvest. So uh, walk through this with me just for a second. And I'm not going to give you much time to fill these blanks in. So I tried to give you short words that you could write fast. All right. In James, the Christian life is all about field work. So for example, Jewish Christians are referred to in verse one as scattered seed. The rich are referred to as withering grass. Christians are the first fruits of God's harvest. Growth in chapter one, verse 21, it happens by receiving the implanted word. You see how he's constantly working this agricultural metaphor. Illustrations that are used in the book of James are wildfires and fig trees and grapevines. Righteousness is represented as a harvest that is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then the exemplars at the end of the book of James, the ones that were, the examples we're meant to follow are patient farmers who pray for rain. And he even uses Elijah as his illustration. Elijah was in a day of famine and it hadn't rained for all this time. And he said, be like Elijah and pray for the rain. And here in our text, in verse 18, you see it there. By his own choice, this is God, the Father, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You think about Genesis chapter one, where God created everything by his powerful word. God speaks the world into being. He says, let there be light, and there was light. It, in other words, let there be light was a, uh, the technical term would be, it was a performative utterance. A performative, think about it, a performative utterance is an utterance that actually brings about the thing that it is announcing. So, I now pronounce you man and wife. It performs it, it seals it, the marriage has happened. Uh, or an, a performative utterance that some kids might have heard this morning is, wake up, <laughs> right? The word does the waking. It's not talking about waking in theory. The word wake up actually wakes. That's what happens when God says, let there be light. And James is using that same image. He's evoking that same imagery from Genesis chapter one. And he is saying, by verse 18, his own choice, God gave us birth by the word. He said, be born again, and you were born again. He said, live, and you came alive. If you're a Christian, it's because like Jesus walked up to the tomb of Lazarus, you familiar with this story? Jesus walks up to the tomb of Lazarus, and what does he say? He says, Lazarus, come forth, and it isn't really good thing that he said Lazarus because if he had just said come forth all the tombs would have been emptied but he specified Lazarus come forth and here comes Lazarus no surprise it was a performative utterance he says come forth here comes Lazarus and and the idea here is both in Paul the apostle Paul talks about this and James come forth 
is what God speaks and his words in the gospel made you live. The great hymn writer, Charles Wesley, he wrote a hymn about his own conversion. In one of the verses, he talks about when the lights came on. And here's what he said. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening, that is a life-giving, a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. It's Ephesians 2 set to music. It's, It's you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You weren't moving anytime soon. You weren't coming alive by your own power. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. But God made you alive together with Christ. <laughs> your salvation is God's gift. Your, salva- your spiritual aliveness, your faith to believe wasn't conjured up by anything inside of you. Everything inside of you was dead to God. And so you needed to be awakened from outside. You needed salvation, Luther's term, extranos, Latin, from outside of you. God made us Alive, it was God's gift to James. In this way, James is really just rocking a harmony with Ephesians 2. He's singing harmony with things that Paul says in Ephesians, things that Paul says in Romans, things that Paul says in Galatians, where Paul says in Galatians, God forbid that we should boast except in the cross. The, the gospel of Jesus, the way that God saves us, excludes all human boasting. James will not allow any church-going Pharisees to high-five one another for having made ourselves sufficiently presentable to God. He will have none of that. James says, your life in Christ began when God gave you new birth by his powerful word. It all begins when God gives us new birth by his powerful, regenerating word. Let me just say, Christian, understand If God didn't act, verse 18's opening words, by his own choice to bring you from death to life, you would still be dead in your transgressions and sins. You would still be unresponsive to God. You would be running as fast as you can away from God today. Because before Christ and apart from grace, your interior life was Wesley's words, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Nothing inside you apart from God's grace waking you up would be urging you to lay down your autonomy and call Jesus your new king. That's not happening anytime soon. That's why Paul says, there's no one who seeks after God. There's no one who's good. If there's anyone who does find themselves seeking after God, God has sought after them. C.S. Lewis called it the mouse's search for the cat. We think we're the ones seeking, but we're actually the ones who are being sought. In regeneration, get this, God implants new desires that weren't there before. How many of you as believers can testify to the internal transformation that begins? It's like you... 
the, the word means something to you now. You, you want to read this. You want to pray. You have impulses to run to God with your hard things. Those are instincts. They're impulses in your soul. Place it. You want to tell other people about what God is doing in your life. Christians, not whoever will stand there long enough in front of you. It's like you've got this story to tell. You're contagious, right? You're, a desire to please the Lord has been planted in your soul. You desire to please him, as Paul said, to please him in all things. Not, not because of the fear that God is going to disown you, but from a grateful amazement that he never will. Motivation uh, is, is grace-driven motivation. James, so put this all in perspective. James is writing, this is arguably the first thing ever written in the New Testament. This was written in the early 40s AD. Jesus' death and resurrection is about 10 years ago. Is that recent? I went and looked up just for kicks some things that happened in our world in 2014. The ice bucket challenge, right? That's just stuff just over our shoulder, right? I mean, you remember that? There are all kinds of other things I could list off that you'd be like, oh yeah, that feels like that just happened. The death and resurrection of Jesus is 10 years. This is the young fledgling movement of disciples following Jesus and they've been persecuted in that way, right? And James is basically saying, I know it's been, it's been a rough ride these past 10 years and I know it's a young and fledgling upstart movement, but James says, God the Father is at work. And God the Father, what he's saying here at the opening of our passage is, God the Father, trust me, is going to reap a global harvest and the first fruits of that coming larger in gathering is you. James is not taking anybody's assurance away. He's closing their fingers around it, around their assurance. Where is the father at work in the church? Regeneration. The father's reaping a harvest of new life. Next, sanctification, the father's word. So this passage focuses on the transforming power of God's word. And that really is, I think, the main idea that runs through our text. I just want to show you. If you write in your Bible, you might, if you mark in your Bible, you might want to mark this up. So just look at the occurrences of the term the word. Verse 18, birth by the word of truth. Verse 21, Humbly receive the implanted word. Verse 22, be doers of the word. Verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word but not a doer of the word. So it, put that all together, right? What's that, what's that mean? If we miss the thread that James is talking about God speaking that runs through this passage, I think we'll end up taking verse 19 in an odd direction. Understandable direction, but an odd direction given the context. Verse 19, I'll put it this way. Verse 19's command to be quick to listen and slow to speak isn't saying let's be less controlling of conversations with other people. I'm not saying there are no Bible verses that save us from bad listeners or argumentative people. We can maybe go some other places and find that as an implication of the text. But the point is here in context James is saying, you are suffering. He's been saying that from the very beginning of chapter one. You are tempted. And here's what I want you to do. Don't cave into temptation. 
Don't retaliate in anger against God or other people. Instead, be quick to listen to God's word. Be quick to listen to God's word. The word that made you new is what he just talked about the verse before. The word that made you new, the word that gave you life. Turn your ears on. Listen to that word. When the heat of trials tests your faith, James says, crank the volume of God's word, God's promises in your ears. Verse 20, he says, don't respond to the heat of temptation and the heat of suffering with anger. I know the world's angry at you. It's why you lost your homeland. It's why Claudius kicked us out. So the, the Jewish exile, right? Is, we talked about that in week one. Verse 20, though, James says, human anger is not the response. Be slow to anger. Human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. In other words, it's like James is saying, the anger of the church is not how God advances his saving agenda in the world. James is saying, yes, you're persecuted. Yes, it's not easy. Various trials are coming. But your next move when trials come, verse 21, is humbly receive the implanted word. And who's the speaker of that word? God. I want to encourage you friends who are suffering today. James has just said, in the context of testing, he just said, don't do what comes naturally. So I heard years ago, um, an expert in counseling, uh, David Pallison, and he was talking about how the heat of hardship and suffering and trials it doesn't put things into us, it exposes things that are in us. The heat brings out the heart. And that seems to be very much in line with the kinds of things that James was saying in the passage we looked at last week. What comes naturally when the heat is on is I react in anger, right? This outpouring of I explode on whoever is in the blast radius of my trials, including God. Y'all, this passage, this passage wants to make you strong in faith. And it says, when the heat is on, open your ears to receive God's truth. When the heat is on, open your ears to believe God's character so that your read on your present suffering is aligned with eternal truth. James just said, when tests come and they're coming, you're gonna be tempted you're going to be tempted to think this is God's doing and he is turning his guns against me. I'm on the business end of God's punishment. God is fighting against me. And James said, last week's passage, James says, no, he's not. God is not against you. God tempts no one. God is good. Matter of fact, if you want to know, James says in verse 17, if you want to know what kinds of things come into your life from the hand of God the Father, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or turning shadow. It's the same phraseology from which we get in the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning with thee. James says, if you want to talk about what's coming from God in the midst of your trials, it's good things. It's perfect things. It's things that will make your faith stronger. This is 
what James is talking about when he says, be quick to hear. He's saying, essentially, bring your trembling, tempted, tested heart to God's word. Let the word of God lead you into hope. Let the word of God point you to Christ, the gospel of Christ, the death of Christ that covers your sin, the resurrection of Christ that swallows our fear, the return of Christ that promises joy. James says, God, your father, is at work. Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, she was an incredibly godly, gifted woman. And her husband was a, a faithful and gifted theologian and pastor. And when she heard that her husband, Jonathan, had died, she wrote a letter to her children and listened to these words. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be your ever affectionate mother, Sarah. That's what it sounds like when we are walking through tests and trials and we are quick to hear, quick to run and say, God, you tell me which way is up. You tell me what's going on and how you're active in my life. In this way, I'm not, I'm not unsaying things that we've talked about in the book of Psalms, for example, the compassion of God that's evidenced in Psalms by which he hears his people cry. You read Psalms and some of them sound like edgy words uttered in the presence of God, right? Even when our cries are mixed with misunderstanding and there's a lot of that in the book of Psalms. I praise God for all of that, not unsaying any of that. Praise God that we don't need perfect theology to find mercy from God. Not unsaying that, but neither does that truth undermine the wisdom of cultivating a disposition of soul that humbly trusts the promises of God over against the screaming witness of my circumstances and my feelings. So you ask the question, what is to influence our response to tests and trials? And the answer is the word. Be quick to listen to it, slow to speak. As a matter of fact, I didn't read the entire letter. Sarah Edwards said, let us hold our hands over our mouths. Not speak, cast aspersions at the character of God. So it's the word that influences our response to tests and trials. The next point is, what's the mirror that reveals not the outer but the inner life? Verse 22. Look at it with me. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in the mirror. But he looks at himself goes away and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it is not a, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. So what's James doing here? Here he's kind of tweaking the analogy. And he, he says, the goal is actually not just hearing. 
And so now he sets up this new contrast, this contrast between kind of merely hearing the word in a passing kind of way, that its impression on our lives is momentary, is fleeting, is superficial, and verse 25, where he uses contrast word there, but the one who looks intently at the word. The one who looks intently is blessed. So the point is that there is a hearing of God's word that isn't really hearing. You ever walk through um, a retail store? I want to say they, do, they have this at Kohl's, but maybe it's another retail store. But where the columns that are you know, load-bearing columns and are scattered throughout the store are mirrors. And so you're, you're not actually walking up to the column to look at yourself. You're walking past the column. You're looking for shirt racks. And you see yourself passing through as you're on your way to the next shirt rack. And then you find that shirt rack and you choose your shirts and then you go into the dressing room and there's another mirror and you look intently at that mirror. You are here to see what that mirror says about this shirt and how you look, for good or evil, right? For good or bad, this mirror is the one you're looking at to make some choices, to act in ways, right? I think that's kind of the idea that James is going for here, that James says, you could could look at God's word like the mirrors and the columns in the retail store, and you kind of see yourself passing through it, and you forget what you saw. You don't even know what you're wearing because you couldn't even see it was a blur passing through the mirror, But James says there's another kind of interaction with God's word where you put something on and you stand in front of it and you see what it shows you. And yet James actually says when you look intently at the mirror of God's word, it doesn't show you your outsides, but it shows you your insides. The Father's word changes our insides. That's the idea of what sanctification does. The great Westminster Shorter Catechism. Sanctification is the work, act of God's free grace by which our whole person is renewed in the image of God and we are made more and more dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Sanctification comes through the instrumentality of God's word. What did Jesus say in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17? Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Your word moves the needle. Your word changes the inside and inside out transformation that's brought about by the word of God. Sanctification is how the father, if you went to work with the father and watched him, you'd watch him making you holy, making you new. And third, imitation, the father's heart. Gazing at God in his word, we become like him as we live in the world. Again, don't lose the thread of the word that runs all the way through this. Gazing at God in his word, we become like him as we live in the world. Look down at verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father, there's the Father still in the picture, is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So again, when he talks about controlling the tongue, the word that's used there in the original language is the word bridle. It's, it's the, the thing that you put, it's the bit in a horse's mouth that allows you to direct, that stop the horse. I mean, the horse is way stronger than you are and yet the bridle allows someone as weak as I am to stop something as powerful as a horse. Is. And so he's talking about bridling the tongue, the control of the tongue is at issue here. And that brings you right back to what James just said. 
everyone be quick to listen, slow to bridle this thing. What's it about to say? And is it true? James is urging persecuted believers to live like missionaries in the world, not culture warriors, missionaries. Remember in other places where Paul or Peter, Peter says, for example, when they revile you as Jesus, as they did Jesus, Jesus did not revile in return and you are meant to follow his example. Paul heard every insult in the book was thrown at the apostle Paul. And you know how he described God's attitude toward the people hurling the insults? God our Savior, who wants every one of them to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Don't be shepherded by our outrage moment, even in our Christian culture today. The effect of God's word is to align us with God's heart. You say that again. The effect of God's word is to align us with the Father's heart. It's one, of the, it's one of the ways that we derive assurance as Christians. God's word is shaping us, transforming us, the renewing of our minds. Right? If God's word isn't making me more loving, something's wrong. Right? Something's wrong. My Bible's broken. I'm not interacting. The wires aren't connected. Something's not working. If God's word isn't creating desires to be compassionate, desires to obey his commands, something's wrong. The wires got disconnected. Again, James loves the Old Testament. And so if you ask the Old Testament to help you understand the Father's heart, not what the Father knows, not what the Father's capable of, but the Father's heart, so much of the Old Testament says, look at what he does for the distressed. And, and there's, a, there's a bundle of terms that basically encapsulates um, the people who are deeply distressed in Old Testament times. And it's the widow, the orphan, the stranger. And so frequently, that is the, uh, the shorthand for those in need of special care and protection and provision and compassion. And so next week, I'm going to talk about orphan care, specifically. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about ministry moving forward in those areas. Talk about the glorious doctrine of adoption next Sunday. But I think James is using this Old Testament shorthand categories so that he can say, if you and I look in the mirror of God's word, the Father will give you his heart. And the next thing you know, the church will become a place of compassion. The church will become a place that runs to vulnerable people people of various kinds, orphans, widows, the poor, the abused, right? James says, when the word is doing its work in the church, you're going to find people of hope and compassion in the church. Is that us? True religion is not a checklist. It's children growing up to look like their father. I, um, I wonder how many battle imposter syndrome when you think about your walk with the Lord. And what I can say with full confidence to everyone here this morning is this. Everyone who looks away from self and to Christ in faith today can belong, can be saved, can be forgiven, can be adopted, can be brought into God's forever family. And not because you look like the father, but because you trust in the son.
And not because you've looked long enough in the mirror to see all the things that need changing, but because you've looked to Christ at the cross. Don't lose where the gospel is. It is not moral reformation. God comes and he gives us everything in Christ. Forgiveness, redemption, justification. He gives us new hearts, new minds, new desires, right? And so the change is downstream of the glorious grace. And the, and the grace encompasses the whole of the Christian life. That's why the scripture says that Jesus is both the author and the what? Finisher of our faith.